spooky goblins and ghouls. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the world of ghosts and gremlins and all the weird things that go bump in the night or during the day that we can't always explain, but we try to, and we love talking about them. And you're here because you also like to talk about them. We are the most haunted podcast in America. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Jumbo. And I'm Sabrina. And Corinne, you're really, I think you've become Katie Heron. I I know I'm channeling her really <laughs> hard. Okay, can I just take a moment? I'm just going to jump right into this. Please. So you were traveling for four weeks or you were in New York for four weeks for work mm-hmm. living in a hotel. Now I am traveling. I have five different cities and two weeks to go to for work. And I was completely responsible for booking – like, this is on me. I booked the hotels (laughs) where I was staying. I was trying to be mindful of location and price and not spend too much on the company dollar. And I am currently in Chicago, and I chose a spot that was pretty inexpensive. It was right by the Bean, (laughs) and I was like, oh, my gosh, what a great location. Done. Yeah. Didn't think too much of it, just booked it. I'm at the Congress Plaza Hotel, and I was <gasps> thinking- Wait, oh my God, you're at the Congress? I didn't fucking make the connection until I was here. Sabrina, on our one-year anniversary of the podcast, you did, you covered the Congress Plaza Hotel. My eyes I'm gonna cry. are burning. I haven't slept in two days. I have tears in my eyes because, Corinne, this is one of the hotels that I want to go to so bad. No. I can't believe you're here. And it's so crazy. Everyone who – you because you don't get to listen to everything that we say before we start to record, the second Corinne and I FaceTimed, I said to her, I said, where are you? It looks like you're in a spaceship. And then she said, I have to talk about it on the podcast. So, oh my god, This is where I am. So I didn't realize. I came in. Whoa. So the, the lobby of the hotel is so beautiful. It's really old. And I was like, ooh, luxury. Got up to my room. No offense, Congress Plaza Hotel. It needs some updating. It's very old. And I started getting a little bit paranoid about bed bugs. So I started looking at Yelp reviews to see if there was ever a bed bug issue here because I am just obviously anxious about bed bugs and have PTSD from two years ago when one of my roommates brought home bed bugs from Costa Rica. Yep. So mm-hmm. looking at bed bugs and no reviews on bed bugs. But a shit ton about it being the most haunted hotel in Chicago. And I was like, what do you mean the most haunted hotel in Chicago? And then I was like, wait a second. Everything's starting to sound similar. Oh, my God. I think I know the name of this hotel. And then I looked back on our Excel sheet and saw that you had done it on our one-year anniversary originally. And I was like, oh, my God. No. I can't believe you're staying there. I have, I have a whole pilot based on the – because we covered this – at our one-year episode, there was, like, an idea that was sparked because there's, like, the story of, like, a room that's blocked off on the 14th or something floor. It's I think it's the fourth floor. Maybe it's the 14th. Or fourth floor. But whatever it is, I I was looking online because I was like, fuck, 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 fuck. This is where, like, that – I don't want to say the names of the ghosts because what if they come and find me here? Eek! But there's one of the um, – people will just have to go back and listen. But yeah. the room that you're talking about – I am in that same room on a different floor. So I'm like, oh, my God, what if they come up? Travel through <gasps> the floors. Corinne. I literally have I'm not I'm nervous slept. for us. I'm nervous for you. I am nervous as well. I was already kind of creeped out from the room, but I thought that it was just because it's an old hotel and I'm alone and it was, I don't know, just a bunch of anxieties. No, it's, it's 
And Haunted. Then now I'm like literally like my eyes have been crying all day. They're so raw underneath and my eyes sting because I got here Thursday night. Today is Saturday night. I have not slept at all. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to die from exhaustion, but I'm leaving tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Okay. You just have to make it through tonight. Do you have sage with you? Do you have anything to protect you right now? I have nothing. Say something positive. Last night I did do, as soon as I got into bed, I did the ribbon wrapping technique. Okay. Well, what can we do for right now? We're about to record a podcast about something scary. This is a room with positive intentions with positive people. And we are talking about things that might make you, people listening around me, feel like you want to come forward. However, this is not the time. It's not the place. I am not ready for that. And so I would like to respectfully put up some boundaries and ask that you do not approach me today nor tomorrow morning. Love it. I think that will work. Although, oh, what were you going to say? I was going to say that this episode, I don't know, you know, like, well, this episode we're doing Unsolved Mysteries, Mm -hmm. and I always think that the paranormal world has the answers to all of our questions because they always seem to be all-knowing and they can predict things or they know the future and they can come to you and give you wisdom. So what if they know the answers to our Unsolved Mysteries? Well, then I will encourage them to write into our podcast. It's (laughs) twogirlsfunkospodcast at gmail.com. Do not tell me in person. Or don't let Corinne hear it. Yeah, you can speak it into the microphone and then our <laughs> editor, Eric, will have shit himself. But that's fine. <laughs> and our listeners will be emailing us. Oh, my gosh. There's EVP. Yeah. Okay, but here's the only thing that kind of creeped me out was when I get scared and when I feel maybe too in tune or think that I'm going to be too in tune and don't want to be, mm-hmm. I do the ribbon wrapping technique. And it's always been wonderful and it's always worked. However, oh no. last night when I tried to do it, I couldn't for the life of me start it. It's I've never had Whoa. like a blockage where it wouldn't let me do it, but it was so hard. And then the ribbon kept turning into this. It's normally for me like this really light gold silk. No matter how hard I try to change it, it always appears as that. And last night it was a thick black <gasps> thing. And I was like, ah, I don't really want to wrap myself oh. in this, but I needed to wrap myself. Yeah, that's strange. It seems like something was trying to taint it and prevent you from putting it up i better not freaking see anything tonight oh my gosh anyway i'm not good at this but i accidentally i'm the one that's like i don't want to go anywhere and then i accidentally book myself how funny is that i'm pretty jealous i feel like it's our thing to do haunted things together and you accidentally did it without me sabrina i so wish you were here with me i need someone (laughs) to be in bed with me and hold my hand do you want to do like what couples do when they're like, watch you go to sleep? I'll stay on FaceTime and then until you go to sleep. Oh my gosh, yes. I don't know that couples do that. I feel like that's a movie thing. Nick and I do not do this, by the way. Well, you live together, so that would be weird. <laughs> Maybe he does watch me sleep. I don't know. You know, it's not everyone it's takes romantic. a moment to, to observe their loved one and how how happy they are to see them at peace in their sleep. <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is me always. I wish I could sleep all the time. Oh my gosh. Okay. This is not ghost story related, but I needed to tell you because we talk about food on the podcast often, Mm -hmm. but I tried this thing where I was trying to be really healthy and I did some like Googling on the interwebs and I was like, oh, good, healthy, comfort food. And a thing that came up was a parsnip puree, which is supposed to be a replacement for mashed potatoes. I really don't know how I feel about that. 
I highly do not recommend it. And I needed to tell someone what I tried <laughs> I and how, how wrong it went. <laughs> that, yeah, that sounds gross. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Although, okay, here's – so our friend Alex, who used to work for BuzzFeed Tasty, has gone through this um, sort of like spiritual awakening. And she, in doing so, has become much, much more of a plant-based eater. Mm-hmm. And she made the bombest looking – did you see it? Do you ever watch her videos or keep up? I follow her on Instagram. We should also have her on because I know she has so many. You were telling us about her awakening the other day, and I was like, "Whoa, this is amazing!" Really, it gave me chills. But also, she has a ghost story, and I've chatted with her before about like, "Oh, let's record when I'm out in LA." But we haven't because I've always been in LA for not for pleasure, but for business and wedding. Yeah. But what would she make? But she made the best looking like plant based pizza the other day. Mm. Oh my god! And then people have been telling me about this. Um, dairy-free cheese that sounds ridiculous. Diet? But it's made of cashews, and people said it's really good. Which one is it? What did you just say? Daya? Yeah. Yeah. Have you had it? I've Do had it. Do you not feel the same? Uh, I mean, it doesn't taste just like cheese. Uh, what okay. I love is I love making macadamia nut cheese, and it's with nutritional yeast, macadamia nuts, water, olive oil, and lemon juice, and it tastes... So good. It's like a sauce. It's a saucy cheese, Ooh, but it's okay. really good. I have good. to give that to me because I need to work on myself. I will never give up cheese. Burrata and mac and cheese are the things that keep my soul going. <laughs> so that's not an option, but I am going to try harder to not partake in them as frequently. Yeah. Have I ever told you growing up, because I grew up vegetarian, instead of having a meat drawer, my family had two cheese drawers. I freaking respect that. <laughs> That's amazing. And then when I went to college, I was like, oh, wow, my stomach doesn't hurt as much. And I didn't realize what it was until like a year later. I was like, oh, it's because I don't buy cheese. I don't eat cheese on my own. <laughs> and then I called my mom because my mom and sister and I always, it's like, I'm always tired and I have a stomach ache. And then so when I had this epiphany and realization, I called my mom and she goes, no, that's not it. <laughs> absolute refusal that's amazing yeah yeah i mean you don't want to it's hard to come to terms with certain things like that yeah okay, okay. i'm so excited so excited this was kind of, this was like an open-ended sort of relationship <laughs> <laughs> just the, the topic. topic it's not yeah. quite as specific it's an we did Unsolved Mysteries. Um, I yeah, love so, this. Okay. Might be one of my favorite episodes I've researched. I am so excited about what mystery. you researched because and I feel like I've come across it a few okay, times. This is actually, okay, so working yeah, on Prodigal like Son, a lot of my job like, oh, involves shit, research so and doing yeah, research on, dive on it. crimes so, and murder and different types of serial killers yeah. and things that have happened in history. And this is something that I've come across many times and I – just think it's the most fascinating story. One, because it involves the Soviets, maybe UFOs and Bigfoot, and who knows, so many different theories that are behind it. And it has so much evidence. Like there are detailed diaries, there's photographs, and it's a mystery that for 60 years people have been trying to figure out and no one has. So I think it's just so fascinating. So yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. Y'all. So... 
Sixty years ago, in January of 1959, ten Soviet college students embarked on a ski trip and a hike up the northern Urals mountain region. Their destination? Otorten, a mountain in the region that's name translates to don't go there. Nine of the ten students were never seen alive again. And the question that remains is how did they die? Because no one knows for certain. And for years, scientists and experts alike have tried to solve the mystery, but it is still unsolved. Eek. So the group was made up of students from Ural Polytechnical Institute and Igor Dyatlov was a 23-year-old radio engineering student and the leader of the group. He designed and assembled radios and even made a small portable stove that he actually brought with him on the trek. Mm -hmm. And he was, everyone who knew him said he was a very charismatic man. He loved adventure more than anything, and he liked to break rules. So when he read about or taught in peak and the fact that it translated to don't go there, he was like, well, now I must go there. And it was also categorized as one of the most difficult treks and highest peaks in the area. So he was even more determined and excited right. to go. Very intriguing. Yes. And so he put together a group of eight men and two women who wanted to join him on this journey. And he also made sure that each of these members were well-trained and that they had a grade two or grade three in skiing, which is grade three is the highest certification in the Soviet Union. And all of them were two or three. So they were all very well trained. They knew what they were doing. They're all athletes, skiers, mm -hmm. hikers. They've done this before. So Igor is the leader. And then the other members were, and I'm going to talk a little bit about them each. And it kind of starts to plant a little bit of the mystery. But okay, so there was Yuri. And also, these are Soviet Russian names. And I apologize in advance. I am not perfect. I am human. And I am not Russian. I don't speak a Russian language. So I will not get this perfect. Please do not burn me at the stake. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So Yuri Droshenko was a 21-year-old man who was in his fourth year of school, also studying radio engineering. And he had a reputation on campus for being um, – there was a previous trek that he had gone on. And apparently he ran at a giant bear with this geology hammer. And everyone on campus, like, knew him because of this incident. And, like, he just had a cool rep. You know, he was, like, the badass guy who chased a bear. And he and Zena, who's another member of the group who I'll talk about in just a few moments, actually met on that previous trek where he chased a bear and they fell mm -hmm. in love. And they kind of had this like, complicated relationship where they were on again and off again. And there's a lot of reason to believe based on the documents that were found uh, at their tent that their relationship was reignited while on this trek. Ooh la but la. Unfortunately, they both passed Romance. away. Oh. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it's just one of those things where when you think of the story and what happened on the days that no one really knows, it's just sweet to think that there was love, love in the air. Yes. Also complicated love because there's also belief that maybe Igor Dyatlov had a crush on Zena as well because he wrote in his journal like some like long poetic sentence about how beautiful she was and he had a photo of her in his diary. <gasps> Which plays into one of the theories of what happened, but okay. I don't believe it. Okay. And then there was Ludmila Dubinina, who was a 20-year-old female and the youngest of the group. 
and she was an engineering and economics major. She probably kept the most detailed notes in her diary, so you would think that would be helpful, but her notes were so confusing, and everyone who's ever read them is like, it's so strange because she keeps writing about this impending doom that she kept feeling and she couldn't describe it in words, but that she felt very unsettled and like questioned this journey and if maybe she should turn around and go back, but she never did. So she had a premonition. Yeah. So this is what kind of helps support maybe a mystical element of what happened. Mm-hmm. Then there was Yuri Krivonyshenko. Krivonyshenko. Shekno, a 23-year-old male, and he was a good friend of Igor's who joined him on almost all of his expeditions. Yuri studied construction and hydraulics, and after graduating in 1957, he worked in a secret nuclear facility. And he apparently had a crazy, rambunctious personality. And when they first started this trek to the mountains, he was even arrested like the morning after they got off the train because he was like, mm-hmm. let's party. And he was really loud. And so the police were like, you're being way too noisy. This is a tiny little town. You don't belong here. And they arrested him very briefly. But basically then we're like, okay, go. Go do your trek. We don't want to deal with you anymore. Then there was Alexander Kol- Kolivatov. I've, I'm sorry. I don't know how to pronounce these. It's okay. You know what? You have yeah. a last name that no one can pronounce. That's true. I have true. a full name that no one can pronounce. You're right. It Thank happens. You. It makes me feel This better. is why it's so fun to go explore different cultures and languages because yes. we just don't know and we'll never quite perfect it unless we actually live there for a long time. But yes, we should try and we should never discourage other people for trying or for trying to learn. Right. And we're telling their stories. So we're doing something good. Okay. Mm -hmm. Alexander was a 24-year-old male who was studying nuclear physics and he has – it's interesting because it seems like tragedy followed his family around. He – his father was in a higher power position, but when Alexander was 10, his father was found dead on train tracks and it's pretty clear that it was a murder, but because of the Soviet government and how they – you know, they keep their secrets and they don't really – dig into these investigations and maybe perhaps they're the ones who killed him they ruled it as suicide or as an accident and they didn't look into it and alexander became he basically didn't have any schooling or anything because of his childhood but when after his father was dead his family escaped and he was able to go to school And he became one of the top scientists and was set to work for a secret institute of machine building after graduation, but died before he could do that. And then we have Zina Kolmogorova, who is a 22-year-old female. She was a fifth-year radio engineering student who loved hiking. She is the one that I said was with in a relationship with Yuri and then also possibly in a love triangle with Igor. But she was so she had gone on so many expeditions, even one, she had been bit by a viper and and survived. And so she loved adventure and knew what she was doing. And then there was Rustem Slobodin, who was a 23-year-old male, who was a long-distance runner and very quiet man, and he used to go on treks with his father. And so when this opportunity presented itself to him, he was like, hell yeah, I'm going on that. Oh, yeah. And then there was Nikolai Thibudu. Thibaut Brijonel, who was a 20- oh, Really? <laughs> you did French again. Well, this one is like Thibaut is a French 
I don't know, maybe he is French. I actually really like the name Nikolai. Yeah. Huh. Put it in your your notes for your future children. Or or my pets. <laughs> yeah, that too. He was a 23-year-old male who graduated with a major in civil engineering and was part of the sports club, which is how he heard about this expedition. And then there was Seyman Zolotorov. He was a 38-year-old male and was the only member of the group to not have attended Ural Polytechnical Institute. And he's also the most mysterious member of the group, and people aren't really sure who he is or where he came from. This man has a record of being in the military and then became a tourism instructor at the mountain regions, which is how people believe he got in with this group. But Mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy because when all the bodies were found and discovered, he was buried at a certain plot. But his family was like, I don't think it's him. And so they excavated his body. Or what's it called? Um, Exhumed. Exhumed. So they exhumed his body and did a DNA test, and it came back negative, that it wasn't connected to his family. But then the Russian government Mm. decided to do their own DNA test, and theirs came back positive. So there's a weird, like, is is there a cover-up happening here? And there's, like, elements of it throughout that I'm kind of wondering and thinking that, yes, there is. Yeah, what the heck? Yeah. Also, apologies if you hear barking dogs in the background. My neighbor has three dogs that like to bark a lot. They're little babies and they just miss their mama. So yeah, so this is like part of why the Russian cover-up seems like a legitimate theory. Okay, then there's Yuri Yudin, who is a 21-year-old male and the only member of the group to have survived. And he had actually been in love with Luda, who was the youngest member of the group who passed away. She had given him a teddy bear just a few days before her death. And he actually kept it until he died at like 75 years old from like natural causes. Wow. Yeah. (gasps) Yeah. Special teddy bear. I know. I know. So this brings us now to the chain of events. How did Yuri Yudin survive? And what happened to this group of brilliant students? Which is crazy to me. All of these are engineers they're really smart students and humans and they had bright futures ahead of them they had they were Mm -hmm. working for secret or set up to work for secret agencies and government so it's just like it's wild to believe that what happened to them happened to them so what happened let's do it what the heck happened what the heck happened so on january 25th of 1959 the group boarded a train to the town of Sverdolfsk Oblast, and they knew it would be a difficult task to get a ride from that small town to the village that was beneath the mountains. And they actually ended up finding a guy who was willing to give them a ride in the back of their truck. And so all of them, all 10 members of the group climbed into the back of a truck. And there are photos of this, and you can see they just all look so happy. They have all the camping gear. They have everything with them. Yeah. And they went to the town of Vizai, where they spent the night before they began their big journey. And then on January 27th, they began their trek toward Otorten from Vizai, and they had all of their equipment, food, clothing, and everything necessary. They were really diligent in planning. They had maps. They had compasses. They marked out which path they were going to take. They had their portable stove. They had radios. And they also planned to stop at the small little cabin along the way up so that they could drop everything that they didn't need that wasn't necessary for their trek. Mm -hmm. And so when they arrived at this little cabin, Yuri Yudin 
he had like struggled a lot getting up there and he, I guess, had struggled with health issues his entire life. And when he got to the cabin, he was like, I'm so sad and I'm so sorry, but I need to turn back. I need to go home. I can't continue on with this journey. I'm too ill. And so because of his lifelong illnesses, he survived. (gasps) Wow. And he was the only member of this group of 10 to live. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the relief, the mix of relief and guilt that you would feel after learning that no one else on the trip you were supposed to go on survived? It's survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are actually a lot of interviews and he's in a documentary or a movie about the incident as well. So there is a lot of, he's talked about it quite a lot. So although the group was saddened by their friend's departure, they decided to keep going And the only reason we know anything about the days that followed Yuri's departure and the events from there are there on is because the group took detailed notes in their diaries and brought along cameras to document their trip. So what the investigators have pieced together is that on February 1st, the hiking group began to make their way through the unnamed pass. Well, the then unnamed pass, because the pass was then named Dyatlov Pass after this incident. This pass led to Otorten, and it was between two peaks, and it was known for unpredictable weather and high-speed winds, but the group prepared for it. They knew this was the situation, so they had everything they needed. They planned to go a certain way to prevent the winds, and they pushed through the hostile climate and were hit by snow storms and decreased visibility, and apparently, even though they prepared a ton for it, the decreased visibility caused them to lose sense of direction, and they, instead of going north, were moving west. and. By the time they realized where they were, they realized they were on a slope of this nearby mountain, which was called Kolat Sikal, which translates to dead mountain. Oh, everything is just, it's a dead mountain. It's do not come here, do not pass. Yeah. It's all being set up to encourage you or discourage you, dissuade you from ever entering. Right. It's just a weird irony to it all as because yeah. you don't even need these parts. This is what's wild to me is like if it were a movie, you would say, no way is that real. You know, you'd be like, oh, right. You'd be like, this is so corny. Who wrote this? Yeah. Like why? Like, of course, like, oh, they're all going to die. It's Death Mountain. But like this is real life. Yeah. And so this set them back on their predicted arrival day, but it was too late in the day to try to reroute themselves. And instead, they decided to set up camp and spend the night there. And they were like, we'll return to our route in the morning. And it's on this slope on Dead Mountain that all nine hikers met their demise. So no one can be certain what happened when the group went to bed that night. And when no one heard from the hikers, people began to worry. All the hikers had been very clear, like, once we're back, we will write write to you, we'll send messages, but Mm -hmm. it had been over 20 days and nothing. Radio silence. So on February 26 of 1959, a search party was formed and the volunteer rescue team embarked up the mountain. They followed the footsteps of this group and they came upon a strange sight, their campsite. Their tents, their skis, equipment, and clothing were still there, but the students were not. The people who were on the location first remember feeling a sense of dread. They knew right away when they saw the tent and saw all of their belongings still there that the outcome would not be positive. Mm -hmm. And they involved the police. And so when the police arrived at the campsite, they noticed that the tent 
had been cut open from the inside and that most of the team's belongings, including shoes, had been left there. So whatever caused them to leave their tents was enough for them to have to cut open the tents from the inside. (gasps) Yeah. Oh. And then they discovered eight or nine sets of footprints from the team, many of them clearly made by people with either nothing, socks, or just one single shoe on their feet, which is just so eerie to see, like, bare footprints in the snow. Yeah. Ew. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. It makes me so concerned. It's like something happened where you would never – a group as prepared and as brilliant as them wouldn't, on their right minds, just go out like that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Not unless something forced them out like that. Because, that, yeah, that to me signifies fear. Right. And they discover these footprints and they follow them to the edge of the nearby woods almost a mile away from the camp. And you know what's interesting to me is that the evidence they found seemed almost untouched. Like everything – Like, the footprints were still there, even though they had gone missing who knows how many days prior. Like, over 20. And you would think, like, with snow and wind, that it would get covered up. So it's interesting that all was still there and easily seen. And that the tents were still standing. The skis were still, like, left. You know when you take your skis off and you, like, jam them into the snow so they're standing upright? Mm -hmm. Their skis were all standing upright like that. Mm. And... uh. As the investigators continued into the woods where the footsteps were leading them, they found underneath a large cedar tree the remains of a small fire in the first two bodies of Yuri Krivoshenko, who was 23, and Yuri Doroshenko, 21. And both of their bodies were found shoeless and wearing only underwear. And then next, they kept going down further and they found three more bodies, those of Igor Dyatlov, Zina, 24, and Rustam, 23, who all seem to have died on their way back to the camp from the cedar tree. And so these five bodies that were discovered seemed like the death was pretty clear. It looked like hypothermia. They were underdressed out in the cold weather of negative 13 to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, and their bodies were kind of shriveled up and frozen. So they assumed hypothermia and there was no reason to think otherwise. But it wasn't until the other four bodies were found two months later that the mystery deepened. It took two months to find the other four bodies. Mm -hmm. And their bodies were found buried under the snow in a ravine. And it was like 75 meters deeper into the woods than where the tree was where all the other bodies were found. And three of these skiers had fatal injuries, including Nikolai, who had suffered significant skull damage in the moments before his death. But there was no external damage. It was interior. His skull had been shattered as if, and it was related to the trauma of a car accident, like how horrible his skull had been crushed. The impact was so... Yeah. But there was no bruising or anything to see outside. Oh my God. So it's like nothing hit him to cause it. And then Luda, who is 20 and the youngest of the group, and <laughs> Semon had major chest fractures that could have only been caused by an immense force. And again, neither of them had bruising to imply that something had hit them. 
And then the most gruesome discovery was that of Dubanina, who was missing her tongue, her eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of her skull bone. Are you kidding me? This is an alien abduction. What the hell? It's pretty horrible. I mean, UFOs is definitely one theory. There are so many. Sorry, I won't make you go into them yet. I'm- <laughs> I, I honestly could probably, we could probably do an entire podcast series just about this because <gasps> the amount of articles and theories are endless. Uh, and then they also found the final body of Alexander Kolivatov, who was in the same location, but he didn't have any severe wounds the same way these other three bodies did. Mm-hmm. So the discovery of these second group of bodies they were like, okay, now there's something suspicious and this doesn't just look like hypothermia. It seemed like all these, the four final bodies that were found, it appeared that they died at different times and as if you could tell who died first because the second person tried to like take their clothing to warm themselves and it kind of seemed like the last person to die was wearing a mixture of everyone else's clothing. That's so bizarre. Mm-hmm. So Russian authorities quickly closed the case, noting that the cause of death was an unknown compelling force, which the hikers were unable to overcome, which is super vague. That's okay. An unknown. Okay. What? Unknown compelling force. So could absolutely be paranormal. That means that they have no freaking idea what happened and are probably Mm -hmm. shaken in their boots. Yeah. And they were kind of pretty adamant about an avalanche, and they thought maybe it was an avalanche, and I'll get more into that in a little bit. But since that night, what happened to the hikers at Dyatlov Pass prompted wild speculation that ranges from a serial killer, avalanches, animal attacks, secret weapons, a military cover-up, gravity anomalies, a fire in the tent, killer snowmen, Bigfoot... UFOs, or temporary insanity caused by either drug abuse or infrasound. And those are only just a few of the like major theories that have oh been gosh. discussed. I'm definitely pro-evil snowman. <laughs> I know. I think evil snowman's a little mixed with Bigfoot and the Yeti. <laughs> Although I believe in Bigfoot and the Yeti. But before we get into all of the theories, okay, are you ready to get into these theories? Yes. Okay. And I'm I'm telling you right now, I didn't get to I didn't even get I'm not even going to be able to tell you all of them because there's so many. Okay. But I'll tell you the ones that are most frequently Ooh, discussed. Okay. Russian investigators were able to reconstruct part of what happened the night based on the recovered evidence. The theory that they put out there was that the sleeping hikers were suddenly awakened and they cut open the tent with a knife and fled down the slope into the nearby woods because they were terrified by an avalanche. And that when they got down into the woods where the cedar tree was, they got lost and couldn't find their way back to the campsite just based on weather conditions or whatnot. And so while at the cedar tree, these two hikers decided to start a fire and that the and they realized that the flame wouldn't keep going and wouldn't keep the group alive. So three hikers decided to take their chance and try to find their way back to the tent. But they died on their way up. And then the other four went deeper into the woods and apparently triggered another avalanche while they were there, which caused them to fall over the edge and drop nine feet and hit ice and rocks, which caused them to die. 
So how did the avalanche cut that one woman's lips and everything off of her body? They, Their answer would be that animals took her tongue, her lips, her eyeballs, and part of her skull. But not the others, just hers. I mean, certain scavengers, perhaps, I guess it depends on the type of wound or the way that the incision was made, the removal of the parts. Yeah, it's just interesting that they would take all of her bits and not any of the other four or the other three that were there with her. And scavengers often go for the the, uh, intestinal region, your stomach area. Oh, interesting. At the time, they said that there wasn't a third party involved because they only found footprints belonging to nine people. But I was like, I, how can you tell it only belongs to nine people if half the people are wearing shoes or one shoe and then others are just wearing are barefoot or wearing socks? Like, how can you determine specifically that it's only nine people, mm-hmm. especially if they're fleeing away? I don't know. I have questions. And then the official Soviet investigator into the tragedy, Lee Lev Ivanov, said he could find no answers. And he concluded in his hastily composed report that all nine deaths had been caused by what he described as an unknown elemental force, which they were unable to overcome. And he privately told many people that he thought they'd been killed by aliens in a UFO. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a really good quote I'll read in a little bit, too, about that. But so, like, there are all these different theories, and apparently his report was not enough. And then the Soviets wanted to make it more official, and so they said that they died of hypothermia that was caused by them fleeing their tent because of an avalanche, and then that was that for them. But a lot of local people believed that maybe the students were attacked by the local Mansi tribesmen because... They it's technically their land and they founded the land and they named the land and perhaps they didn't want trespassers on it or they felt like they were being pushed out and so they attacked them. But the Mansi people were really peaceful and it didn't seem to, based on the evidence and the way that traumas were internal and not external, made it appear as if there were no third-party human attack. Investigators then conceived of a swift, violent avalanche, and they said there was sound of snow collapsing, and that frightened them out of their tents. And it would have been powerful enough to inflict the injuries that killed the second group of students, and it may have caused them to lose their nerve and run. And in confusion, they raced away from the danger, but then couldn't find their way back. But there was no sign, and this is what I said before, there's no sign of their tents being attacked by an avalanche, If there was an avalanche, it would have knocked their tents down. It would have knocked their skis down. It would have Mm -hmm. covered up their footprints, but there was none of that. And they were experienced hikers. So I feel like if they, they would have been more aware of what an avalanche sounds like and been less, less inclined to just bolt and run. Yeah. And if they were, I mean, who's to say what would actually maybe happen? It, one person may have been acting hysterical, which then only increased the fear and kind of triggered everybody else to react in a way that they shouldn't have been. But at the same time, there's just enough evidence and enough experience amongst everybody there that you would think that, yeah, there's no possible way that the avalanche is an appropriate and accurate explanation. I agree. 
I agree. And there were no avalanches that had been recorded at the site before or the people who lived in that area below the mountain said there was no avalanches. They didn't hear anything. They didn't see anything. And they don't think they don't think it's true. Mm. Some have tried to explain the, the hikers strange behavior and their lack of clothing with looking at the effects of hypothermia, which is apparently there's when your body starts to freeze, it almost gets hot. And so people, if you're going through hypothermia, might strip your clothing off because yeah, you think you're hot, but you're actually freezing. And so they were thinking that maybe that was why they were found partially clothed. And irrationality is a common early sign of hypothermia. Yeah, I mean, it can cause you to remove your clothing, but also cause you to have other psychological effects, like maybe having hallucinations or like paranoia about your surroundings. But it doesn't explain why the hikers left all their warm tents in a panic for the outside world in the first place. And then recent research suggests that a rare weather phenomenon, which is whirlwinds formed by the air flowing over the summit of the nearby mountain, created infrasound vibrations, which is below the range of human hearing and it affects the human nervous system, causing irrational fear in the members of the hiking group. And so as they fled the campsite because of this like sound that caused their nervous systems to freak out, they realized that they were lost. It was too late and they were lost in the snowstorm. That's interesting. It's kind of like the whistle with dogs. Like when it comes down to it, we're all just animals. Mm-hmm. So there right. are some things that might be triggered in us where our, our minds can't control it. We can't overcome our body's reaction. Right. I just wonder if there's ever been proof or research done on those infrasound vibrations and if that's actually true and if it can do that to a human. Hmm. But I, I mean, who I'm am I? I'm not a scientist. Oh, <laughs> jinx. There's another legend in the Ural area. There's this fearsome Zoilotoya Baba, which translates to a golden woman who lurks in the area. And so they, one legend is that maybe this golden woman came and attacked the hikers. A golden woman sounds like a nice lady, but but uh, there's attacking involved. Yeah, not if she's responsible for all of this. And then there are some people who think that maybe their deaths were the result of some argument related among the group, maybe about the love triangle and that maybe they were without clothing because they were naked and in having sexual encounters with each other. But people who knew the ski group thought they were pretty harmonious and like the only evidence of a love triangle was written in Igor's journal and like just because he had a photo of her in there doesn't mean he's gonna go attack all of his friends you know Mm -hmm. and also again there's no evidence of physical human violence against each other right so with humans ruled out as the culprits some began to posit non-human assailants and people used to began to whisper that they were killed by a mink, which is a kind of Russian yeti or Mm. Bigfoot. And they said this would account for the immense force and power necessary to cause the injuries to the three of the students. And there were some articles, and I'm not so sure how real this is, and I think the biggest note of this entire story is that many of the records of this case were kind of 
hidden from the public. It's the Soviet right. Union. When this happened, they very quickly wanted to say it was hypothermia and an avalanche that caused them to flee their tent. And the evidence and tent and uh, pictures and everything weren't really released to the public to be like, hey, here's everything we found. I think that out of all the explanations so far, this one makes the most sense. <laughs> well, yeah, For and there, sure. there was there were a few reports that said that the footprints just like disappeared and they stopped walking, which makes you think of Bigfoot who can possibly fly or is like some sort of. It, we talked about this when I was talking about like the the different like desert region regions of Southern California and how. The thought of Bigfoot or Yeti is that it possibly could be an interdimensional species yeah. or have the power and control over over controlling its both of its its appearance. So like oh. kind of going invisible as well as, as its weight, like kind of just becoming this. It, it reminds me of that one guy in Monsters, Inc. who, you know, he goes invisible. Oh, what's the his salamander name? salamander guy. The, he's the villain. For a minute. Yeah. True. For a minute. And so with the Bigfoot theory, they're like, okay, well, maybe the Bigfoot took her tongue, her eyes, and her skull tissue. There was also apparently some web sleuths figured out that there were small amounts of radiation detected on the bodies. And so there are theories that the group of students had been killed by some sort of radioactive weapon that had been tested at the mountain range and that the Soviet government was testing nuclear weapons on the mountain and that they didn't know this obviously because they're going up there for a hike and they ended up on the wrong mountain pass and that perhaps they died and had like a feverish reaction to the radioactive testing that makes somewhat yeah it makes a little bit of sense as well yeah though i'm still coming back to the internal injuries on some and not others and the the missing parts on some and not others. I know. Aliens, I'm telling you. Aliens or Bigfoot? It's got to be something. And then there was also this, the radiation um, theory. People expanded on that and kind of used the fact that the bodies, when they were examined, had an orange hue to them. But that also could be explained by the frigid conditions in which they were mummified in the cold. The article was like, it's so hard for people to resist the theory of mysterious military weapon testing because that's what the Soviet Union was doing. They were doing a lot of testing in 1959. And like, if you in, I think Sputnik was launched into space during this time. And so there's this big competition between countries to be the best and have the best military and discover space. And so I feel like, they were doing these testings often. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for people to resist it and people kind of want to, a lot of people lean heavily into this, but again, there's no proof of it. And there's another hiking group that actually was lower than the Dyatlov team. And they said that they heard strange noises and saw orange orbs floating in the sky that night. And they thought maybe there was distant explosions but also this might also lead into UFOs. And like I said, Lev Ivanov, who was the chief investigator of the incident, said that I suspected at the time, and I'm almost sure now, that these bright flying spheres had a direct connection to the group's death. And 
He said that secrecy in the USSR forced him to abandon this line of inquiry, and in the end, the hikers' deaths were officially attributed to hypothermia and avalanche, and the case was closed. Oh, God. But in 2019, Russian officials reported that they were reopening the case for a new investigation, but that they would only consider three theories, an avalanche, a snow slab, or a hurricane. So, like, basically all natural causes. Okay. And so then the pass was then named Dyatlov Pass in honor of Igor Dyatlov, who was the leader of the expedition, and a monument to the nine hikers was erected in the cemetery where the only people who will ever know the full truth of what happened that night in Dyatlov Pass were all laid to rest. What (laughs) the hell happened? Literally no idea. And there's a website called dyatlovpass.com, and they have every single theory you could ever want. There are books that have been written about it. There are movies that have been made about it. I legit watched a movie called Devil's Pass today that I don't recommend to anyone, but... It was, like, all about an American group who tried to see what happened. There's, like, time travel theories about it. There's – it's just endless, and you could read about it forever. Oh, and, like, people think that maybe they were on shrooms and that they, like, met a shaman in the village before they went up there and they got shrooms. But there was no autopsies really performed because they were assumed to be killed by hypothermia. And then if the autopsies were performed, we don't have records of them. And the Soviet Union just wanted to say, hey, it's – x so this is a really dark thought but what if they had a really awful trip on drugs and they mutilated their friend themselves Oof. and then kind of turned and attacked another one of the guys who maybe like ran and had a really high impact injury from like falling forcefully on a rock or like falling Ugh. a few feet down yeah i mean it's very possible or what makes the most sense to me is that it was a abominable snowman. I, I think UFO makes a lot of sense. I also think you choose aliens, I choose Bigfoot. Surprise, surprise. But I also believe that nuclear weapons testing is a very plausible explanation That's too true. because it explains why the government is so adamant about closing the case and not making it a big deal. Right. Oh my gosh, are we conspiracy theorists? What if we get murdered for talking about this? Well, then everyone, we're saying it now. It's on the podcast. If we go missing, you know what why. If, oh my gosh, what if they're listening to us right now and this podcast never gets posted because they get to us before it's posted? Well, then that really sucks for us. We have our cameras on. What if they're hacking into our cameras? <gasps> well, guess what, friends? You can't escape us. We will haunt you for all your fucking lives. <laughs> So what would you rather? Would you rather us look like conspiracy theorists and talk about it on a podcast? Yeah. Ooh, that would be fun. Or would you rather have two girls haunt you for your one life? I kind of want to haunt some Russian biznatches. How long ago was this? This was 1959, so 60 years ago. 60 years ago. Isn't it interesting that in like American television, it's always, I feel bad for Russia, that it's always like the Russians. I know. But- There is some proof in history. Well, this happened in Russia to Russian people. Yeah, and there's there's evidence in history of why this is the case. We're not just like, oh, Russians are bad because X. It's like, no, there's evidence that you've done shitty stuff. Yeah, just like in America, baby. Well, yeah, there's cover-ups everywhere. Oh, yeah. 
Germany. We could talk about that all day. Yep. Yep. It happens everywhere. Everybody. I feel like sometimes I feel like we never learn, but hopefully now that we're great at better at record keeping in history and maybe we could be better in our forward looking forward looking times. You know, someone's gonna have access to the nuclear codes and accidentally set them off and there's gonna be a nuclear war and we're all gonna die because one country set off the nukes, the other ones are gonna retaliate and then all of a sudden. All right, well I'm gonna be hiding in my bunker. I'll stash it with all of my favorite things, mac and cheese, burrata, chicken pot pie, warm Toll House cookie dough, which means cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what did you pick? Because I am not familiar. I chose the strange and unsolved case of Pauline Picard. And it is confusing. It is upsetting. It's makes me feel kind of guilty talking about some of the things when it comes to supernatural options, uh, different plausible explanations, because it involves a very young child. Oh, that's always so sad. So sad. So the Picard family, they lived on a farm in Galsaludu, in which is in Brittany, France. And the Picard's two-year-old daughter, Pauline, was playing outside in their yard. They had a huge piece of land. It was farmland. And they had, you know, their neighbors were also farmers. It was just like a wonderful play spot for children because it was just like open fields. The parents could see where they were going. Uh, And there was plenty of space to roam. And Pauline loved to play outside. She's two years old. She loves to play outside Mm -hmm. with all of her eight siblings. Yikes. Whoa, eight? Um, Eight siblings. Mom, you need to rest. (laughs) I'd be sleeping all day. I'd be like, sorry, man. I just pumped out children for nine years straight. So someone else can take the wheel. Yeah. Well, that's you have when you have that many kids, they start to take care of each other. (laughs) Let's hope. (laughs) Fuck. All right. (laughs) So Pauline, she's outside playing with her with her sibling she loves being outside and her parents don't really think much of it they don't really worry about it because they're in this semi-secluded safe quiet plot of land they know their neighbors the town is small and she has so many siblings alongside her they're all looking out for each other and they're there's always someone with you know each other out there however pauline's parents would later regret that decision the picard children had been out in the yard they were all playing together and sometime around like maybe 4.30 or something, the Picard father, Mr. Picard, he checks on everyone, like just looks outside, sees everybody's all, all good, all playing, like has his eye on Pauline, goes back to business, whatever. Some more time passes and the children come start coming back in. They return for dinner, but Pauline is not with the rest of the children. Oh. And so they go out looking for Pauline. Pauline, just a toddler, two years old, seemingly vanished into thin air. They could not find her. They were frantically looking for her, and they very, very quickly contacted authorities and reported her disappearance, and everyone in the area began the search. There were all of the neighbors, people from neighboring towns. They all came to help hordes of people. They were combing the town, all lining up and going through the farmlands, the surrounding properties, and together they were probably around a hundred people combing this farmland, but they found nothing, no trace of Pauline, nothing that belonged to her. It was like she had never been outside that day. Like wow. it, it, there was nothing left from where she had 
last been seen. That's so scary. So, so scary. The disappearance of this two-year-old child, Pauline Picard, it gained so much press. The media dubbed her as La Petite Pauline Picard, or I don't know, can you do it in like a French accent? La Petite Pauline Picard. Oh, wonderful. It sounds so good when you say it. <laughs> the case was, it was all over the world. So not only was it uh, something that was very heavily covered in France, because this is where it happened, but I mean, it made the major city. So like it was in Paris, France, it made it to the, the major city. It was in the US, covered in wow. New York. Like the newspapers were on top of the story. So the family obviously is absolutely devastated and for the next few weeks they throw themselves into the search for pauline they don't give up hope days and days go on there's absolutely no news but then three weeks after the disappearance seemingly a miracle happens oh my gosh there was a girl that had been found had been seen in cherbourg which was another town in france uh the little girl was wearing nice clothing she was wandering the streets super confused she was alone. And the odd thing is, though, is that Cherbourg is about 300 kilometers away. That's like like 180-some miles. It's so far away. Three weeks. This little girl Whoa. didn't wander there on her own. Yeah, no She's way. She's dressed in new clothing. No. She's wandering around by herself. And so people who – I mean, the case was everywhere. And so people were like, oh, my God, who is this little girl? And so the police end up taking this little girl who had been all alone, confused, wandering the streets at two years old. They take her in and they send a photo of her to the Picard family. And Mrs. Picard, when she sees the photo of this little girl 300 kilometers away, she breaks into tears and she says, that's my daughter. Whoa. And she's totally distraught. They're so upset. Um that she, you know, had been taken and was so far away and, and so scared and lost, but at the same time overcome with relief because yeah, their daughter What is are alive. the chances? What are the chances? They say after, what is it, 24 hours, the chances of a child who is missing returning to safety. Yeah, and especially in 1922. Oh, my God. Yeah. They did not have CCTV footage. There were no traffic cams. There weren't a million people writing down license plates as they went by, people calling in from their cell phones. Wow. That didn't happen. So anyway, they they spent so much time worrying now about getting to Pauline, getting Pauline back, and they were just so overjoyed and so relieved that she was about to be returned home to safety. But they didn't really spend much time on – how she got there so the focus was more now on oh my gosh pauline's back let's bring her back so the picard parents they head to sherberg and they meet pauline at the hospice which is where she had been kept when she was found on the street and after spending a couple hours with her they noticed that this little girl who looks exactly like their daughter doesn't seem to recognize them she's not really interacting <sighs> with her parents and she looks just like Pauline, but she's not really behaving like Pauline. Wait, this reminds me so. of that. What's the – there was a case more recently where a boy went missing and like a mom, to get a reward, made her own son who looked very similar to the kid. Do you remember this? I don't know. That's disturbing. Yeah. And it was like all fake and their their kid actually was dead. 
Oh I don't my know. god. <gasps> oh, I so, hate Someone that. email us what that story is because it's a real thing and now I can't remember it. Oh my god, we can Google it too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, if it, they were noticing that these things were happening, but if anything, like think about it. There was a toddler, a two-year-old toddler who had just been taken away somehow was taken away for three weeks from her family. It was such a dramatic experience that, of course, the child's not going to behave normally after that. Yeah, yeah, yes. So the Picards are like, okay, she obviously is struck from the trauma of this event, and she'll return back to normal. She just needs to like be in her normal routine, back with her family, back with, with her siblings. Let's bring her home. So they take her home to the warmth of their home with all of the Picard uh, children, and they're like, we are never taking our eyes off of this girl or any of our kids again. Everyone needs to stay safe. We are on high alert. So Pauline gets home. Her siblings are so excited. Oh, my God, Pauline's home. All the neighbors come over. They're looking at Pauline, and they're like, oh, my God, thank God she's back. Everybody's seeing this girl like, sweet Pauline, sweet baby is back with all of us. Everybody knew the family. It was a small town. And so everybody's so overjoyed that she's back, and yet no one really understands how she ended up hundreds of miles away still. Right. So her behavior is a little bit off. She, Pauline is very afraid and very shy and she's not speaking either. She's pretty much completely mute. She's kind of like babbling some things, but she's not speaking. And she seemed to not really register when spoken to in Breton, which is the native dialect used in that area. Um, Nor was she responding to just general French either. So she was just kind of like babbling, which... Everyone was like, it means that she doesn't speak that language. But like to me, I actually have an example of my own life where like something so less traumatic happened to me and it made me kind of like regress a little bit in my yeah. speech. When I was five, my family moved from New Hampshire to Vermont in the middle of my kindergarten year. So I moved to a whole new state and joined a new classroom full of people that I had Aww. no idea who they were. And I was five and I – Ended up developing a really bad stutter and my parents brought me to the doctor because they thought something was wrong. And the pediatrician just said like, no, just give her a few months. She's just yeah. really stressed out from the move and from everything that's new. And like I grew up in a warm, loving home with a stay-at-home mom who was super supportive and there for me emotionally. And yet I still developed a stutter from the stress of it. So can you imagine being a two-year-old child ripped away for three whole weeks and wandering the streets of a town no. you have never seen. I could not imagine that. So I understand why maybe she wouldn't be speaking from the trauma of it all. So anyway, I don't think it's that strange that people regress, uh, especially when certain traumatic things happen. But um, there were also a few other things happening to Pauline that were a little bit weird as well. So one example is she wasn't really walking that well. And maybe that's, again, something that was more of a regression. Maybe something happened. I don't know. But she wasn't walking the same that she used to. And moreover, mm. she seemed especially afraid of the area in on the farm where she had initially disappeared, where she had last been seen. So she seems to register that area and be, like, really nervous around that area. So they're just like, okay, this is obviously going to take some time. She's so young and we don't know what happened. We won't know what happened because she's not talking and she's so young that we're not sure if we'll ever truly know. But like we just need to be the most supportive of Pauline that we can be. 
So yeah. time, a little bit of time goes on and Pauline begins to act more and more like herself. But as she starts to act more and more like herself, her, the Picard family starts to question if this is Pauline. So there's been enough uh, examples of just like behavior and things that they're, they start to be like, okay, well, this little girl looks like Pauline. She mm-hmm. seems to somewhat know the farm, but something's still a little bit off. Is she shorter than we remember? Is her nose maybe not as prominent as we remember? Maybe she doesn't mm. look like we quite remembered. What if this little girl is not our daughter, Pauline? I'm so curious. Is there any information on how they found her and like who she was with? Was she just wandering the streets when she was found? She was wandering. There were a few people around. There was a woman in rags and she had mm. been like seen kind of like keeping her eye on the child or being around the child, though she wasn't interacting with the child. And the woman in rags didn't quite match up with Pauline. Pauline was wearing expensive, like, nice clothing when she was found. Um, So it, like, appeared that she had been taken care of. So while that woman seemed to have her eye on Pauline, they're not sure that there's any connection to that. Nor were they able to, like, find that woman again and and validate I'm so curious. Yeah. Okay. So there's the family starting to be like, oh gosh, is this Pauline? Did we do something bad? Like what's going on? And then on May 27th, a neighboring farmer, a neighbor slash farmer, he is cycling and on his bike ride, he finds a naked body of a little girl 800 meters from the Picard family. Oh. From the farm. The body had recently been placed there. The area had been searched many, many times during the initial search for Pauline Picard, and no body had been there. Many people had been in that spot. It was a spot that people just, like, kind of passed through. There were farmers in that area. Like, the body had not been there. Wow. But this body is now there. And the little the little girl's body is very decomposed. The hands... The feet and the head were detached (gasps) from the body and not with the body. So they never really recovered that. So they don't have exact information on who the body actually was or maybe some of the uh, maybe things that could be seen on the hands and and face or head that could be um, answers as to what exactly happened to this person. But there were marks on her body suggesting that scavengers had gotten to the body, but oddly enough, the marks were not in normal places. So kind of like the example in in your story, um, Davlov Pass or whatever it's called, that uh, there were there was evidence that scavengers had mm-hmm. picked at the body, but maybe not in the spots that were so normal. Right. So like like I was saying, like the the gut area, the stomach area is like a big one, kind of like the go to, but the marks were in different areas. So that was kind of odd. Maybe it was just that the scavengers, the body hadn't been there for that long. So maybe the scavengers didn't have that much time Mm. with the body. I don't know. But it was very decomposed. There were missing pieces from the body or missing parts. I don't know what the right terminology is. Right. But the pieces being detached makes you think like someone cut her up. murderer. Yeah. Yes. So it kind of does lean more heavily towards the towards the um, chance of it being a murderer. Like definitely there's a lot of evidence stacking up to that. And also alongside the little girl's body, 
the clothes that the little girl had been wearing, this little girl was naked when she was found. Mm. And next to the body were uh, folded neatly a stack of clothes. The suspected cause of death was a blow to the head, even though there weren't there was not a head, mm. uh, but there were many injuries made to the torso, which appeared to be done by a sharp object. So it was really looking like a murder. And the police, alongside the cyclist slash neighbor farmer and the Picards, because they were the closest family like to that that plot of like that was on basically their land. They all are now visiting the crime scene all together in horror, standing above the crime scene, looking at this poor victim's body. And Pauline's mother makes a very gruesome discovery <laughs> when she sees the stack of clothing. It's made up of a black and white dress, a navy blue jacket, and black tights. And those were the clothes that Pauline <gasps> had been wearing the day that she disappeared. So who is this other little so, girl? Right. Right. Okay. So everybody's like, holy shit, this has to be the body of Pauline Picard. Though we can't prove it because there's no head or anything like that. And at the time, there was no DNA evidence. And, you know, they were missing a lot of pieces. But they had the clothes and they had uh, what appeared to be the sort of like torso and arms without hands and legs without feet right. section of a body that very well could be Pauline Picard and it was on the land. And a few people thought that maybe Pauline had wandered too far from home and she'd been confused. Maybe she succumbed to the ele elements outside because that night that she disappeared, there was a storm that came in. And that wouldn't be out of the question if we weren't certain or didn't like very much think that the body had been recently placed there just because there were so many people who had said that they passed through the area or had searched that area during the initial disappearance and never saw the body. So it was really, really, really thought that the body was placed there so it, it couldn't have been a natural death from the elements. Oh. Some people believed that the murderer was a local farmer, Eve Martin, he had acted very strangely and quite emotionally when learning of Pauline's disappearance. And when the little girl was identified in Cherbourg as Pauline, he actually stopped by and was really shaky and asked if they were sure that that girl was Pauline. And then he yelled, God help me, I'm guilty. <gasps> and he started laughing and he ran off. Whoa. He was later admitted to an asylum for mental handicap. He had actually suffered um, a pretty bad injury on the job and and was mentally handicapped. Um, so no one actually knows for certain whether he was admitting to anything or if this was just kind of like a manifestation, some stress that happened to him. And he kind of just like was saying things that he didn't actually mean. So they don't know about his involvement, though, when the body had been discovered and thought to have been placed, he was already in the hospital. So he wouldn't have moved the body. Mm. Another possible suspect was a man named Mr. Caraman, who was an umbrella salesman. He had previously been sentenced to, to uh, five years in jail for rape. And he was in the area of the Picard family during the time that Pauline went missing. However, when he was actually like, there's evidence of like the time of when Mr. Caraman was 
was passing through the area and actually aligns with the time when Mr. Picard had gone out and checked on his children and had eyes on Pauline. So they don't believe that it was him. But he could have waited, right? Like he could have. He could have waited. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. There were also two unidentified strangers who were passing through the area at the time, but no one figured out who these people were. And they believed that, you know, they could have easily abducted Pauline. Right. Some people thought that maybe Mr. Picard had murdered her and Mm. he was just so, he kept it from his family, kept it from his wife. And then when his wife was like, this child in in Sherberg is Pauline, he was so quick to validate her claims to be like, yes, 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 it is. And so they were like, maybe it was because he was trying to not get caught and he was really pushing her towards believing that this other child is Pauline. Yeah. That's interesting. Others believe. Yes. There's so many different theories. In that, though, he, he, I mean, granted, they figured out that the girl wasn't their real daughter, but in any situation, whoever did it for a brief moment of time must have felt so lucky that this strange oh coincidence yes. that this girl looked just like their missing daughter. Right? Yeah. Pretty wild. Um, there was also another, a lot of the locals kind of had believed in, in this theory or some people had believed in this theory that uh, there had been a very wealthy family and this wealthy family's daughter had passed away and they were super, super distraught and they had offered the Picard family money to take Pauline who looked a lot like their daughter and that the body that had been placed and found was actually the rich family's daughter posed as Pauline, disguised as Pauline and that they had taken actual pauline but something had gone wrong she had gotten gone missing in a city 300 miles away and was accidentally reunited with her family yeah some people also think that the young child who was found in Cherbourg was simply abandoned by her wealthy foreign parents because she wasn't speaking and so they thought maybe she'd never knew breton or or french so she must have had foreign parents who just abandoned her and she was confused and she couldn't speak the language and was just found wandering. So the mystery, it's wild and it's unsolved still. And there's no DNA evidence to help out with this. So we'll never really know the answer. But the mystery only got larger when the investigators who were searching for evidence around the body actually found another skull nearby. So another one right where the body had been laid or dumped. And there was the skull of an adult male so everyone's like oh. is this the work of a serial killer and this is just the dumping ground right here they just dump the bodies here but there was also uh, no reports of missing men and to this day they have no idea who this guy is who the skull belongs to whoa but that's so, so weird. weird but like the real mystery is like who is this little girl that was living with the picards who are they taking care of yeah. Where are her parents and who's looking for her, if anyone? Like, what's going on? That is that is the mystery. Right? And what's even weirder is that, like, I understand if the parents were maybe so distraught and so desperate to have their daughter back that they maybe overlooked some big red flags or, like, mm-hmm. big things that would be like, this clearly isn't our daughter. I would understand if maybe some of the kids, the siblings did too. But so many like neighbors, friends, everyone had identified this little girl's Pauline, which is so weird. They must have looked identical. 
Did the family then raise her or what happened to this girl? So they made a decision. They were like, okay, now that there's a body and there's clothing next to the body and this little girl's kind of like wasn't acting completely like Pauline when she came here, this must not be Pauline. And so they actually made the decision to give up this little girl who they didn't think belonged to them. And the little girl was sent back to Cherbourg to live in an orphanage. Wow. But what's actually really, really odd and kind of strange is that a month after this little girl was taken from the Picard family and brought into an orphanage, she started to talk a lot more. And she started to talk in Breton, which is the native dialect. And she started talking about her siblings and recalled uh, the farm and whatnot. So people are like, okay, is this little girl actually oh my God. Pauline? Did she finally just gain back her strength and her ability to talk again, kind of like adjusted back to reality? Or maybe this little girl had, you know, been taken in by the Picards. And at such a young age, at two, your brain is super malleable. It's a sponge. Mm-hmm. So maybe she had picked up on some of the language enough to kind of confuse people at the orphanage into thinking, holy crap, did these people lose their daughter find their daughter and then believe their daughter wasn't their daughter and give her up again. Right. And also, yeah, if she picked up the language and if everyone is telling you who you are and like your family and your life, yeah, two years old, you probably start to believe that. And then she would talk about that as if it is her life. So this poor girl, if she's not their daughter, is, is was probably very confused and messed up for the rest of her life. Oh, my gosh. I know. And unfortunately, she died a year later of the measles. So she didn't oh my gosh. long at all. And actually, okay, so in my research, I found a bunch of other cases of like weird kind of uh, things similar to this. And there was a case, uh, the Bobby Dunbar case. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it, but it was basically – I'm going to give you like a a three-sentence synopsis, although I'm sure there are podcasts dedicated to this case. It's so wild. But kind of around a similar time, like in the early 1900s, this family, their son had gone missing. And a year later or so, or sometime later, six months later, there was a boy uh, who actually didn't really even look that much like their son, but like enough, shared enough similarities that the parents were so zeroed in and so focused on being like, that's our son, that's our son. Those people kidnapped him. Mm-hmm. And the the kid was only four at the time. Bobby Dunbar was only four when he had gone missing. Wow. And this kid was like four. And there was a big case, a big court case. And this child didn't have – his father wasn't very well off and couldn't afford a lot of the legal fees and actually ended up losing his son to these – grief-stricken parents, the Dunbars, who had convinced themselves that this stranger child was theirs. They take in this kid, raise him as Bobby Dunbar for his entire life. He died in like 2002 or something like that. And his family, his descendants, were like, we're fine. Okay, let's squash this. DNA evidence is out there. Like it's more affordable. It's accessible. Let's finally squash this weird family rumor that our grandfather – Uh, was like abducted and isn't who he says he is and the dna evidence came back and yep that kid was (gasps) not bobby dunbar oh my gosh so wild so anyway so like this stuff does happen it's unbelievable to think that it could but i just found the other one that i was talking about earlier it's the wineville chicken coop murders and it's 
Christine Collins, her son Walter Collins, went missing. And then a few months later, a boy appeared saying he was Walter Collins. And, like, he looked kind of like it. And the LAPD was like, oh, this is your son. And even though this woman was like, this is not my son, because the boy said he was, the cops were like, case closed, here's your son. And it turns out that this boy had just come to L.A. trying to meet a movie star, and he thought the best way to do that was by saying that he was this missing boy. And then when later, was this? later, this is in L.A. in 1928, which is like the, the 1920s. 1920s were a wild time. Yeah. But so then her boy, her son, Walter, had been found murdered by the Wineville chicken coop murderer. Oh, my God. So crazy. This like has happened many times. It's so wild. It's so, so sad. Wow. But, okay. So everyone's trying to figure out exactly what happened and piece everything together in the Picard, in Pauline Picard's disappearance slash reappearance case. Um, And a lot of people are thinking that this is very much just a horrifying and disturbing case of a child who was murdered by a serial killer, dumped next to an earlier victim of said serial killer, And the grief-stricken family is just so desperate for their child back that they basically end up stealing or claiming a stranger's child as their own, only to give her up again a few weeks later. She's fucked up. But we are a paranormal podcast. And so as much as the (laughs) evidence points towards that, we could also maybe talk about some of the possibilities that have been suggested in an attempt to kind of uh, make sense of maybe some of the holes in the story, some of the areas where we're missing some information. So some of these might sound somewhat outlandish, but we should give these theories a moment to sit in the light. To be honest, I completely forgot we were talking that we're a paranormal podcast for this episode. (laughs) Did you get really into the disappearance of Polly? Yeah, I did. It's really wild. Um, Okay. So, some people are like, all right, let's think about it. Pauline seemed to vanish into thin air in the middle of a farm field with all of her siblings around, and the corpse is found. Sometime later, parts are missing from her. Vultures aren't picking from the appropriate parts of her body. Could it be possibly that Pauline had been abducted by aliens? Maybe she'd been studied. She'd been dumped back onto the site where she had been originally abducted, and perhaps there were certain tests done Uh, certain things done to her body which made certain parts of her body like the stomach area where where uh scavengers would first go maybe it was less desirable there was some kind of sick smell something that the animals knew that they shouldn't be targeting those parts but this theory does not explain the strange folding of the clothes next to her body nor does it explain the second pauline from sherberg another theory was the possibility of fairies in the area, Faye, coming and abducting Pauline. But again, this doesn't explain – it could explain, you know, her disappearance, although right. the dumping of the body is strange. And just like the abduction, alien abduction story or theory, it doesn't explain the Sherberg Pauline. Right. And the last supernatural explanation and maybe the more disturbing explanation is the idea that the second Pauline could have been a doppelganger. <gasps> I was just thinking this. Mm-hmm. So – and it's really sad to even kind of like say this because most likely it was just a – Yeah. It was probably just this innocent child who had like the most traumatic life in her short three years. Right. But because we are a paranormal podcast, we will talk about this theory – 
people think that it could be a doppelganger and some sort of stronger entity was at work here attempting to introduce the Sherberg Pauline as the missing Pauline while murdering the real Pauline. And just like in the movie Us, Sherberg Pauline didn't speak at first. She was acting kind of strange, but then she began to learn the ways of her new family in an attempt to integrate into the family. Uh. And this would make a lot of sense as to why the neighbors all validated the Picard's claim that this child was Pauline. Because, like, how do you not recognize your child as your own? And how do every how does every single person around you say, like, yep, that's Pauline. That makes sense. Good right. to me. However, as much as it might be fun to speculate some of these things and go into supernatural explanations, it's very likely that maybe – this was a case where there were two little girls of similar ages, similar features, who suffered terrible tragedies, death and abandonment within a few weeks of each other, resulting in the strange and unsolved case of Pauline Picard. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it's tragic. It's so sad. R- regardless of what happened, the idea of one child being murdered and then maybe another being displaced from their own family like what if there was a poor i know she showed up in richer clothing but maybe she had one nice outfit that her family put her in and it's like poor family lost their child and maybe they tried to report it but then everyone was like no no no, this is not your child it's this other family's child that's been all over the news you know right yes it's just so awful or maybe something really horrible happened to her parents on vacation and she had escaped it and abandoned seemed abandoned but really was just confused and no one knew to look for her but there's also just like so many so many odd things that yeah can it's so sad yeah it's it's wild but like i first was clicking on this story because there was like oh possibility of fairies possibility of doppelganger and so many gosh yeah and so there are definitely things that like add up but then there are also other explanations as well. So this is kind of one of those interesting cases and a really sad case. Yeah. I love talking about these, though. I feel like this is a perfect example of how life is very confusing and you just have to get wrap your mind around the fact that you're not going to have answers to everything. Yeah. And I think it's easier to ground yourself into understanding than maybe a traditional paranormal ghost story is because it's like, Something that could happen to anyone. It's almost, I feel like sometimes things are so painful and so awful to think about the like reality of them that it's Mm -hmm. almost nicer to speculate some of the supernatural things. Yeah. Some of the things that feel less in control. Mm -hmm. Not that we're in control with child abduction, but yeah. 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 Listener story time. So, how we talked about how you chose Bigfoot and I chose aliens. I chose an alien listener story. Oh my God, amazing. From Jason. It's called An Astral Encounter with an Alien and the Hat Man. Sabrina and Corinne, I have a great story for you. Usually when you hear stories of alien encounters, they all seem to follow the same pattern. Alien beings coming and abducting you from your bed. They take you to their ship where they perform weird, painful experiments on you. And then they wipe your memory before they let you go. But I have a story for you of an alien encounter I had while astral traveling that may change your thoughts on aliens. During this trip, 
I also encountered the hat man. Here's my story. One night in April of 2019, I astral projected in my sleep. This is not unusual for me as I have a tendency to astral travel in my sleep. I found myself in a field with mountains and trees and a small stream running through the trees. I have astral traveled to this place more than once as a way to relax from the stresses of everyday life. But this time was different. As I was standing in the field, I got the feeling that I was not alone. I looked around and only saw a herd of elk grazing in the distance. But suddenly, there was a flash of bright light and I was temporarily blinded. After several minutes, my eyes refocused and sight returned. Standing in front of me was a tall figure. I sensed feminine energy and the figure was not human. It was about eight feet tall, had broad shoulders, and skin like dragon scales. She had large yellow eyes, no nose, and a small mouth. She spoke in a language I could not understand. It sounded like German, Russian, and Chinese mixed together. Somehow, as she spoke, I could hear the words translated into my mind. She said, Do not be afraid. I mean you no harm. And I said, Who are you? How is it that I can understand you? She said, I have no given name, but you may call me Anne One. I do not know how you understand me. I have no control of that. It is something within your mind that makes it possible. And I said, Where do you come from? She said, Beyond the horizon, beyond the stars, a place called Mahayeno. The universe is much more vast than you can possibly imagine. And he said, What do you want? She said, to give you a message, to let you know that you are not alone in this universe. There are many worlds with many different life forms on them. There are even some with life forms like you. Like me? You mean humans? Yes, humans. How could you know that? I have traveled to many worlds exploring and studying other life forms. So you are more technologically advanced than we are? In a way, yes. We are not limited by the same physical means as you. We can travel greater distances than your kind. Why did you choose to share this with me? I did not intentionally choose you. You were simply the first of your kind I encountered while studying this world. Why were you studying this world? To see what your kind is like. You are so very different from my kind. During my study of your world, I have noticed that there are those among you that are from other worlds. Really? I hope you don't mean the lizard people. I think if there were aliens here, we would have noticed them by now. She said, I do not know the lizard people of which you speak. You have not noticed the others among you because they look just like you. Some species take samples from your kind to breed offspring that look like you so they can study your kind without your knowledge. When they take the samples from you, they modify your memory so you don't remember it. Wow, now things like make a lot more sense. Can I ask you a question? She said, you may. What is it like in your world? What do you eat? Do you sleep? Do you have jobs? She said, My world is a peaceful place. We, li we live in harmony. We do not seek sustenance in the way you do. We lay in the light and absorb nutrients from it. The light brings us sustenance. We do not require sleep. And I do not know the jobs you speak of. <gasps> They're like plants. I know! She bent down and touched her head to mine, and I felt a cool tingling sensation on my forehead. After several seconds, she stood back up. And I asked, what just happened? She said, we are now connected to each other. I have marked you. In time, you may see me again. But for now, I must return to my world. This is like Avatar. It's crazy. And in a bright flash of light, she was gone. I waited for my sight to return and then began to make my way back home. 
Astral traveling is much faster than normal traveling. Soon, I was standing in my front yard about to enter my house when I sensed someone watching me. I turned around and saw a shadow figure standing behind one of the trees in my front yard. I asked, who are you? And the shadow figure stepped out from behind the tree and I could see it was a tall man wearing a bowler hat. I instantly knew it was the hat man. When he noticed that I could see him, he tipped his hat. And I asked, what do you want? And he said, to give you a message. I have seen you, and now you have seen me. Fear not, for I have no quarrel with you. I'll always be watching. What the hell? Hatman speaks, and he speaks like the alien. I know. Turned around. Like the alien. <laughs> he tipped his hat again, turned around, and disappeared into the darkness. With his word, words echoing in my head, I entered the house, locked the door behind me, and returned to my bedroom. As I passed through the spare bedroom, I could see the clock read, 3.33 a.m. I paused to look at my body resting peacefully before I re-entered it. <gasps> Blessed be Jason. He was astral traveling? Yeah, that was the whole point. That was the whole beginning. Sorry, I got way too into the whole, like, I thought he was in a car. Sorry. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah. So much well, on his plane. And it's so interesting because a lot of people have said the hat man ha- might have connection to the greys or to aliens. Yes. And so maybe it's like the hat man follows people who have have been marked encountered aliens. Do you think he's like the watcher? He's kind of like the tattletale. Like if something happens in the greys or the Ooh. aliens, those who have been marked by them need to come and visit once more. He's kind of <gasps> the one that's like, "Hey, I think you should take a moment to come see Jason. Some stuff has been going on." Yes, and I just had a crazy theory. So this alien woman who spoke to Jason said that they take samples from humans and wipe their memory and then create offspring to then study them, <gasps> right? And they say that the hat man is a familial haunting. Holy. Maybe it's a familial haunting because the children are offspring that the aliens are researching and studying. <laughs> oh, my Jason, wait, this is unreal. unreal. Oh my gosh. Also, I'm so amazed by his ability to control his astral traveling. I know. Because the one time that I really did it, it was the most terrifying thing. And I felt like I had no control. And so I've never done it oh again. Oh my God. Yeah. And to to control the conversations as well and not be completely freaked out to be like well let me continue asking you questions so that i can gain as much information while i have your ear (laughs) that's just so awesome oh my god oh my god wow jason if you have astral traveling astral projection advice for us let us know please i heard mugwort is good so let us know mugwort okay i also heard trying to do it naked is beneficial i don't want to be naked in the astral plane I don't want to be naked in this plane. (laughs) Okay, I have a listener story. This is called Momentarily Trapped in Eternity. What? What is better than the unsolved mystery of glitches in the Matrix? Love glitches. Or just time lapses. Okay. Yeah. Hello, ladies. (laughs) Firstly, I'd like to say that when I listen to the podcast, it feels like I'm hanging with a couple of friends who share my love for all things spooky and weird. It's to the point that one time I was on the phone with my boyfriend and he heard you in the background and we're like, are those the spooky girls? LOL. (laughs) (laughs) 
I've been listening to your podcast for a little over a year now, and it's gotten to the point that I'm going back and re-listening to episodes here and there. Today at work, I was listening to episode 47, The Glitch, and had a flashback to the time that I was trapped in a time warp. Cue the Twilight Zone theme song. Um, it was my second year of college, and I was hanging with two coworkers one night after work. We were about to head downtown for some drinks, and we're just, and we just wanted to unwind and pregame. On a side note, my friend's house was trippy as hell. I'm talking uneven floors and warping walls that were painted green and purple, crack details painted in. Pretty sure the decorator was insane. So <laughs> it definitely set the mood for the creepiness. While we were chatting in the living room, I seemed to zone out for a moment, as I wanted to do. I was off in my own little world when it catches my attention that my friends are repeating the same conversation. I still remember it vividly. My friend was talking about riding his bike to class, and the other friend commented on how hot it must be getting up those hills over and over. Oh my gosh. Eventually, I stood up, kind of shaken at this point, and asked my friends why they were messing with me. They look a little puzzled, and then they start the same conversation over again. I'm scared at this point and dart into the hallway and step away, and it seems to go on forever. Whoa. I walk into the next doorway for a change of scenery, but I end up walking into the same exact room <gasps> I had just left to find my friends repeating the conversation. No. By now, the tears are starting, and I'm pacing in looping circles into the hall, next doorway, back to the room. Same conversation. Oh, my gosh. Over and over. Finally, I crumble to the floor, thinking to myself, this is it. This is my eternity now. It felt like hours had passed when my friend touched my back, asking if I was okay. I was bawling, and I begged him to take me home, and he agreed. In the car, I asked him what the fuck was going on back there. And he said that he and my friend were just talking and I suddenly freaked out. Turns out that those hours of time was more like a 10-minute window. <gasps> at this point, I'm looking forward and I see exit 10 sign pass and I look back at my friend. The headlights of another car reflect off of the rearview mirror, causing a passing glare over his face. We continue talking and I look forward again. I see the exit 10 sign pass by. I look to my friend. And I see the same glare over his face. Oh my gosh. Again and again. This happens probably five more times. Somehow oh the time loop comes to an end as soon as I'm back at my apartment. Love you both to the other side and back. Abby and my black bat kitty pumpkin. Oh. Wow. Isn't that the scariest thing? Because not only is it just like a glitch that's like, Oh my God, I just witnessed the same thing. Is this deja vu? Is this a glitch in the matrix? Like she was stuck in loops like over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, it's the Groundhog Day. Literally. Or Death Day. It's so wild. Yeah, it's so wild to me because I wonder if like why that moment specifically? Was there something in the conversation? Or maybe it was just a random occurrence. I mean, it happened twice to her in one night, which is crazy to me. But like maybe I'm thinking too like movie plot wise. But I feel like when that happens, it's because something needs to happen. But that sounds, I feel like my body would clench up. I'm thinking of any, like a panic attack. I would completely lose it. I know. I know. I'm not sure that I would continue to try to go in circles through the rooms. I think I would just like crumple to the floor, which is what she did at one point. But oh my God, I can't imagine being like, did I die? And is this literally purgatory? Am I in hell? Like, what is this? Right. I was just going to say, I was watching American Horror Story the apocalypse season and it does a lot of um 
what hell looks like. And each person has their own personal hell and they have to continuously relive a moment over and over and over and over and over again. And I was like, yeah, that's that's hell. Holy crap. Oh my God. But so I'm so glad me. it ended. Yeah. And I hope that that never happens again. But it makes me wonder if there's something, Same. some sort of like maybe Abby has this sensitivity to some sort of weird energy that was in that house. Yeah. I wonder. I don't know though. I don't know either. But if you guys know, or if you have anything that's ever happened to you, paranormal, unsolved, unsolved, macabre, spooky, sweet, strange, amazing, yeah, anything, email us at twogirlsoneghostpodcast at gmail.com. And please rate and review us on iTunes. It means so much to us. And your support on there specifically really helps us stay in the charts, helps other people find us. And you can also help people find us by joining our pyramid scheme. I almost said our cult, but I was like, we don't have that. Our pyramid scheme by telling all of your friends about our podcast. Now, before we have to say goodbye, because truly that's one of the hardest, most sad things that we have to do every week, we want to say a quick thank you to some of our Patreon donors for the month of October. Uh, Without you, we would not be able to do this, and your support truly means so much to us. All of you really feel like a part of our lives and our community and we feel so honored to have you, but and we will see you on, on the other, other side. side.